Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, In the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favour in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. Okay, well, we are starting a new nine-week series in the book of Nehemiah, and we're titling the series Rebuild. Rebuild. And it seems this idea of rebuilding is, is apt for where we are as a church and where we are as a society. Obviously, over the last year and a half, the COVID pandemic has disrupted all sorts of aspects of life, um, all sorts of effects it's had on us. And though we're not out of the woods yet, it does feel like we're at a time for a fresh start. Some restrictions have been lifted um, in the summer. We are starting a new term. It feels like a chance for new things. And many people and groups and organizations are trying to rebuild. They're trying to restore some things that have been lost. They're trying to regather together what has previously been scattered. Now for Grace Church Manchester, this is a big time of change. It's a big time of change for us as a church. Yes, because of the pandemic, but not just that. So next week we are moving venue. We're gonna be meeting together for the first time in a year and a half all together. We're also in the middle of a leadership transition. So Mike, our previous minister, who he and his family were here for 12 years, they left in August. And we've got um, Pete, very excitingly, who's gonna be starting in November as our interim senior pastor. So we're in the middle of a change there. And there's also the general change that comes with a new term. We, we expect, um, God willing, that there will be new people joining our church. Uh, but we're also gonna be saying goodbye to people who've been around for a while, but are moving for the new term um, elsewhere. So there's all sorts of change. And this is a time for us as a church to rebuild. 
So church life has not been as it was. We've lost out on all sorts of things, not least community, being able to worship fully together, to be able to see each other um, in person. And it, this is a chance for us to try and restore something of what we had before, but also a chance to change certain things, to try new things. It's a season of opportunity. But all of this raises big questions. How can a church go about this process well? And what is your part in this, whether you are a leader, whether you are a regular at Grace Church, or whether you're even someone new to the church, or just a, an online visitor tuning in for the first time? What if in this process of change and opportunity, things go wrong? You know, building projects are rarely smooth sailing. So if, or should I say when, things don't go to plan, how can we tackle discouragement or even conflict that could arise in those circumstances? And most importantly, how can we rebuild church life in a way that honours the Lord Jesus and isn't just a way for us to make a name for ourselves or to build our own brand? These are all massive questions. And the book of Nehemiah is well-placed to help us think them through. So Nehemiah is about a building project, quite literally, the rebuilding of the walls in Jerusalem. It's about restoring structures. It's about how um, God uses his power to work things for the favor of his people, even in great difficulty. It's a book about how all of God's people are collectively involved in rebuilding. So despite the name of the book, Nehemiah isn't always the central figure. In fact, in big parts of it, he kind of fades into the background. The book contains long lists of hard to pronounce names representing all the different people who are involved in this rebuilding project. And yes, we'll be looking at some of those names in due course. But it's not just a book about external building, but it's about spiritual restoration as well. So Nehemiah shows us that God's people, it's not enough that they have these structures externally that work. They need to be renewed internally, spiritually. And so I think at this time for us, whoever we are, Nehemiah has something to say to us. For regulars at this church, it'll help us think about how we can rebuild together. But if you're new or visiting, then this is a, a word for you as well. This isn't just an in-house chat for regulars at the church. Nehemiah shows priorities that any church community should have. And so whether you are part of us or whether you are part of another church, this is relevant for you. And even if you're not a Christian, then this is relevant for you as well. Because through these studies, you'll see what the Christian church is supposed to be like. What are its core values? And you'll learn that from its own book, the Bible. But you'll crucially see um, that it's a book that points, its, points beyond itself to the Lord Jesus. And so we'll see what life with Jesus is like, the central figure of the Christian faith. So it's an exciting time for us. So let's just get stuck in, shall we? Let's stuck in, get stuck into Nehemiah chapter 1. So two points uh, this morning. The first is caring about God's kingdom. Caring about God's kingdom. Now, I should probably give a bit of um, historical background here. So Nehemiah takes place um, in the 5th century BC, the 5th century. And it's a time of great weakness for God's people, the Israelites. So it's a time of 
exile. So Israel had dwelt in their land, uh, the land of Israel, and God had given them that land. But what happened was um, the people were disobedient towards God. They turned away from him. They committed unjust acts um, and worshipped other gods. And all this time, God had warned them whilst they were in the land that he'd given them, that if they were disobedient, he would remove them. But they persisted and they persisted in being disobedient. And so eventually the land was invaded and the people driven out. The north kingdom of Israel was defeated by the Assyrians and the southern kingdom of Judah, a little while later, defeated by Babylon. Now this final exile of Babylon, um, to Babylon of Judah, was devastating. As you can imagine, ancient Near Eastern invasions of land were not pretty. Many people were killed. Judah's king uh, was blinded. The last thing he saw was his own sons slaughtered in front of him. And then he was led out in chains to walk along to Babylon, humiliated. Along with the king, the most important um, Jewish people were carried away to Babylon. These were the educated people, um, the most important, um, had the highest status in the society. And so any Jewish people who were left behind in Israel were poor and without any resources. And so they had to stay there in their land that was now scorched, with their city's gates and walls set on fire and destroyed. They were without any security. But it was catastrophic religiously, not just politically and socially. So religious life centred around Jerusalem and its temple. The temple was where God had manifested his presence to the people. It was where sacrifices were made and it was the centre of, of religious life. Israelite religion couldn't function properly without the temple. And yet when the Babylonians invaded, they destroyed it. The temple was left in ruins. The sacrificial system was stopped and there was no way to experience God's presence or make the sacrifices that he required. And so the Israelite community for years and years remained in exile, seemingly without hope. And yet God sent them prophets, messengers who spoke that one day there would be a return from exile, even a restored temple. And this came true historically. So in, in due course over time, the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Persian Empire. And the Persians, seemingly miraculously, allowed the Israelites who were in exile to return to the land of Judah, the land of Israel. Now, to be fair to the Persians, this was probably an act of shrewdness on their part. It was in their interests to keep their subjugated peoples happy. But nevertheless, it was a fulfillment of prophecy that God had sent to the Israelites, and so they were returning to their land. Efforts were made by key leaders to bring people back and start a rebuilding project. So Ezra, who was a, a companion of Nehemiah, he helped rebuild the temple. But even then, these return efforts weren't smooth sailing. So Ezra tried to rebuild the city walls, but he had opposition from um, local people who managed to convince the king of the Persian Empire, Artaxerxes, to give a, um, a royal decree to stop the building in Jerusalem. So this, it was stopped by force. And once again, even after the hope of trying to build these walls and gates, the Israelites were again exposed and vulnerable. And 
around this time, Nehemiah is an Israelite man who is not in Jerusalem. He's back in the Persian citadel of Susa, one of the grand cities in the Persian Empire. In verse 11, if you look at the text, we're told that he's a cupbearer to the king, who is the same Artaxerxes who had ordered the building of Jerusalem's walls to stop. Now, it's remarkable that Nehemiah is in this position as cupbearer. He must have been a trusted servant of the king to have this position. His job was to ensure that the king's wine uh, wasn't poisoned. He must have been highly trusted. And yet, despite this position in in a Gentile foreign land, Nehemiah's religious beliefs weren't compromised. He loved God and he loved God's people. So with that in mind, let's look at the text a little more closely. So it says from verse 1, In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So Nehemiah asks some of his fellow Israelites about the Jewish exiles who had gone back from Persia to Jerusalem. And he learns about the wall that had been built that was now broken. Now this is probably not a reference to the original walls that were broken when the Babylonians came because that was years previously. This is probably a reference to that attempt to rebuild that Ezra tried. And so just look at Nehemiah's reaction. Look at what he says, verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So he's profoundly affected, sitting down and weeping for days. So notice this, this isn't a a momentary sense of pain. This isn't a few minutes of sadness before his mind shifts elsewhere or he distracts himself by turning on the TV. Nehemiah is devastated. This news has got to his core. Why is that? Well, because the fate of Jerusalem is tied up with God's kingdom. And the worship of God at this time centred around the city. So if Jerusalem is in ruins, if rebuilding efforts have been um, stopped, God's people remain vulnerable. And that doesn't just reflect on God's people, that reflects on God himself. How can he be honoured if the land and the city is still vulnerable and broken down? So Nehemiah weeps because he cares about God's kingdom. He cares. And it's interesting, you know, Jerusalem is about 850 miles away from Susa, where Nehemiah was. That's kind of like the distance roughly between Manchester and Munich in Germany. Um, But it would have felt a lot further than Munich does to us. You know, the world is a lot smaller these days. We can see uh, images and videos from other countries very easily via the internet. But Nehemiah had none of that. He couldn't have any kind of visual recollection of his homeland. He only heard through this one report. And Nehemiah, you know, he's a guy of privilege. He's done well, as Israelites go, um, in a foreign land. He's the cupbearer. He lives in this prestigious city. You can imagine that his attention and headspace might not really be 
for Jerusalem. He's got enough going on where he is in his job. And so the state of Jerusalem, well, it could be a bit of out of sight, out of mind, really. That's not the case. His heart is caught up with God's city and God's people. So he asks questions. He wants to know what has happened. And then when he finds out, he is moved by the answer. Put simply, Nehemiah cares about God's kingdom. And this is a basic principle for us here. A Christian maturity means having some form of emotional investment in God's people and the extension of God's kingdom here on this planet. A mature Christian lets himself or herself be affected, to, to be moved in some way by the state of uh, what's going on in, in, in the Christian church. And, you know, to be moved and, and to be affected by something outside of us, that's outside of us, that's what care is, isn't it? If we think about um, this time at the moment, it's, it's a new term. And if you imagine, you know, the parent whose child is moving away from home for the first time. We can perhaps remember the time when we moved away from home um, and, and what that was like for our mum and dad. Or perhaps we are parents at the moment who are dealing with our children going away, perhaps to university or they've gone travelling or simply moved away for a job. Now, if mum or dad truly cares about their children, it's not going to be out of sight, out of mind, is it? You know, from time to time or even quite often, their child's going to pop up in their mind and they're going to ask questions to themselves. They'll think, I wonder, I wonder how they're doing. Are they happy? Are they making friends where they are in this new place? Are they safe? I wonder what they're up to at the moment. You know, their child will come to their mind at, at various times of the day, perhaps what, just whilst they're working or doing the washing up or lying in bed at night. You see, their mood will be caught up with how their child is doing. If they find out that they're sad, then they will be sad. And if we're lucky, we have parents like this, those who are compassionate, those who care. It's unselfish, isn't it, this care? It's, it's the binding of your concern with someone else's. And Nehemiah teaches us here that Christians will bind themselves to the things of God. They will be concerned about God's kingdom. And what does this look like? What does it mean to, to care for God's kingdom specifically? Well, I think it involves a number of things. First, it will be a care um, about Jesus being known. So we'll be invested in, in people hearing the good news about Jesus and responding to him in faith. It'll involve a, a desire and care for our society. We'll want to see justice. It'll involve a care, certainly, for the global church. Meaning investment in our partner churches, how are other churches doing in our city, in our country, in the world? And certainly a care for the persecuted church. That's why we often pray for churches in, in, where it's difficult to be a Christian in the rest of the world, in our services. We want to keep them on our minds, though they are far away. This is what care looks like. And of course, for any individual Christian, a primary focus of their care and concern will be their local church. This is the kind of primary expression of God's kingdom that they are a part of. We care what happens in our local church. And for most of us tuning in, that will be us, a Grace Church. You know, we look ahead at this time of rebuilding and we think about all the things that we could be doing, all the projects that we could work on, um, 
There are so many ways that we could grow, so much that we could do, but it all has to begin with care, the kind of care that Nehemiah showed. Now, as we'll read Nehemiah, we'll see that he was a man who was very capable, and with God's help, he was able to do amazing things. He achieved a lot, but the starting point wasn't his money or his intelligence. It wasn't a first-class degree from a great university. It all begins here at the beginning of the story with the fact that he was actually bothered, that he cared. He asked a question and he was moved by the answer. And so if we're to pull together as a church and under God be a place of health and and blessing and service to the community around us, it will take Christians who care, who ask questions and are moved by the answers. You can imagine the sorts of questions that would be good to ask at this time. I wonder how that church member is doing. I've not seen them in a long time. How are we doing as, as a life group? Are we, are we growing together and being more like Jesus? How can we live out the gospel a, a little bit better as a church? Do you see what I mean? The, the questions that show care. And perhaps now, you know, it could be easy to be distracted For the last year and a half, a lot of us have not seen each other. It could be easy for out of sight, out of mind. And besides, we've all got our own things to worry about, haven't we? But nevertheless, maturity, according to Nehemiah, means care. Care for God's kingdom. And so will you seek to care for God's kingdom? Will you care for your local church? Uh, An obvious and very concrete way of doing that, particularly here at Grace Church, is that we have a church family meeting this evening. We're going to be talking about changes that happen and moves forward. Will you attend? Will you be invested? You even have opportunity to ask questions that we will hopefully get to answer. It's a very obvious way of of showing a bit of care. But whatever it looks like, in whatever sphere of, of God's kingdom, we are called, Nehemiah shows us, to care for it. Well, how does this care work itself out then? You know, there are lots of ways to show care, aren't they? It's sending messages, um, gifts maybe. We talk about care packages. So how do we care in a Christian way? What what does it begin with? So we've talked about caring for God's kingdom. Secondly, let's look at praying for God's kingdom. You see, for a Christian, care leads to prayer. Care leads to prayer. And we see that in Nehemiah's life quite obviously. Look at verse 4. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So we're given uh, Nehemiah's prayer here in the, in, in the rest of the passage. And it really is a bit of a prayer masterclass. There's so much here that we could look at in more detail. But I'm just going to pull out three things for us to look at. The first thing to notice is this. It's that Nehemiah prays at all. Now, if you've come across Nehemiah, if you've read the book before, you'll know that he was a man of action. He's resourceful, industrious. He makes things happen. You don't get the sense that he's someone prone to laziness or inactivity. So I'm reading this book at the moment. Uh, It's called Getting Things Done. It's a book on uh, productivity. And I can imagine that if there was a 5th century BC Persian edition of this book, then maybe Nehemiah would be on the front cover here. Although I imagine not with teeth as white as this guy's. You know, he was known for hard work and productivity. And yet, look at Nehemiah's first response. He hears about 
what's happening in Jerusalem. And his, his instant response is to pray. He prays. And he prays not just for a little while. He prays for days. He's committed. Isn't that interesting? You know, we often tend to pray once all of the options have been exhausted. You know, we, we see a problem. We think, right, what, what can I do to solve it? And only when we're run out of options and resources do we think, oh, we better pray about this. And the attitude is this, I will try all these things in my strength first and then I'll pray if all else fails. But Nehemiah, the man of action, first and foremost takes his concerns to God. Persistently, patiently, over a long time period. You know, there are lots of people in the world who show what it is to care inside and outside the church. But what stands Christians out is that their care will turn to prayer first and foremost. So first thing to notice that he, that he actually prays at all. The second thing to notice is his perspective. If you look at the content of his prayer, just look at how he contrasts who we are and who God is. So who's God? Verse five, he is the Lord the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. The point is that the Lord is quite simply big. He dwells in the heavens. He rules over all the earth. He is great and awesome. You know, it's said that when you go to somewhere like the Grand Canyon, you see it for, your, for the first time. Your, your response is one of awe. Your, your jaw drops. The, the vastness, the scale of it just affects you. And this is a sense of how Nehemiah prays. He prays like he's in the presence of majesty. Like he's been ushered into a grand palace where he can address the great king. It's not casual, is it? Nehemiah's prayer. He's speaking to the Lord, the God of all. So who's God big? Well, who are we? Well, we're put in our place, aren't we? We are servants. Do you notice that word servants? How many times it crops up in the prayer to refer to people. Before a great and awesome God, we are only servants. God is the one who sets the terms and we play by his rules. It's that sense of perspective. This is brilliant little detail. Look at verse 11 again. It says, um, give your servant success by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Now, up until then, if you've just read Nehemiah, you have no idea who this man is. But it turns out that this man is Artaxerxes himself. He's the king. He's, he is the great king of the Persian Empire. So Nehemiah is asking God to help him as he goes to ask a favour of Artaxerxes. But you wouldn't know that it's him because he's just a man in the prayer, as if he's just like any other man. For all his power, Artaxerxes is only human and he is dwarfed by the God of heaven. So Nehemiah may serve in the court of the great king, that is Artaxerxes. But really, the, the true king is the Lord of heaven and earth and all others are servants at most. But not, not only are we servants, we are also sinners and Nehemiah speaks of that and also includes himself in that description. Verse 6, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. So Nehemiah recognises that he's not better than anyone else. 
He knows that the reason the Israelites are in exile to begin with is because they are being judged by God for turning away from him. But he owns his part in that. He's not like, Lord, you know, these idiots over here have committed these sins. He's like, no, Lord, I'm, I'm part of this. It's remarkable openness. So we get this sense of perspective in Nehemiah's prayer. God is big. He's great and awesome. We are servants and sinners. And that, that sort of perspective just helps, helps us kind of guide our own prayers, doesn't it? We see that Nehemiah's posture is one of humility. He's not entitled. He doesn't see prayer like rubbing a lamp and getting his three wishes from a genie. He knows that he doesn't deserve anything before God. He acknowledges his greatness. I wonder how our prayers would be transformed if we prayed like that. It's a good model for it, isn't it? So we've seen that um, Nehemiah prays. We've seen that he has perspective. And then finally, we see that he relies on God's promises. So Nehemiah's prayer is saturated with references from Deuteronomy and from Leviticus, some of the Old Testament books, the books given to Moses. And Nehemiah spends quite a bit of time quoting God's words back to him. So look at verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. So these quoted words were promises that God had given Moses long ago. So from the beginning, God had said that if the Israelites disobey, um, they would go into exile. And yet even then, he also said that if they returned, if they confessed their sins, he would restore them to the land. And Nehemiah is basically saying, look, Lord, you said this. This is what you've said. This is what you've promised. And here we are trying to respond. We're trying to repent. Please restore us. It's a bold prayer, and particularly bold given Nehemiah has just admitted his own culpability. But he's praying not on the basis of what he thinks he deserves, but, what on, but on what God has already said. The basic idea of the prayer is, Lord, you've said this, please do it. And we, we can pray in the same way, by using God's words in the Bible. I wonder what promises, what, what can we draw on from scripture that will help inform our prayers? What has Jesus said that we can draw on? Well, he said he'll never leave us or forsake us. Well, that's a good thing to pray for us as a church right now, isn't it? That the Lord would not leave us or forsake us. Jesus is one who promises rest. Well, that's a good thing that we need, particularly in times of change and transition. We can use scripture like Nehemiah does to pray for God's kingdom and express our care. So to sum up then, those who care, pray. Care will lead to prayer. That is the way that um, Christians, it's the first thing they do to express the care they have. And so as you seek to grow in care for God's kingdom, will you seek to grow in prayer as well? Would you pray for the gospel going out in the world, for people to hear about Jesus, particularly those in unreached parts of the world? Will you pray for the persecuted church? And will you pray for this little church here in Manchester as well? Would you prioritize prayer meetings? 
And in your um, private prayers, will you remember us? We, we need those prayers as a church. We need them. As we learn to show care for God's kingdom, let's ensure that that care is turning into prayer. Well, just as we come towards the end then, how do we summon up this power to pray and to care? Because if we're honest with ourselves and if we look at our levels of care for the church and our levels of prayer, certainly, we realise we come up short. There's much about our care and our prayer that is inadequate. But thankfully, it's not all down to us. You see, Nehemiah here, his, his concern and his care are really pictures that point us towards the Lord Jesus himself, Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate carer. He is the ultimate prayer. And no one is more invested in God's kingdom than he is. Just think, there's that account, isn't there, in the, in the book of Acts, where um, the apostle Paul, when he was called Saul, he was a state-sponsored terrorist. He would go and attack Christians. He would follow them. He would throw them in prison. He would be accessories to their murder. And then Jesus reveals himself dramatically to Saul that one day and he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Isn't that remarkable? So Jesus, he's ascended in heaven. He's quite safe from Saul. And yet he cares so much for his church that he identifies himself with them to the, to the extent that if someone hurts the church, they are hurting Jesus himself. Now that's investment, isn't it? And that's care. You see, today Jesus is more invested in his kingdom than we are. He, he calls the church his own body. And that is actually just really, really good news. You know, there have been a number of times where uh, leaders of the church, we've got together and we've prayed and we've seen things that have come up and um, anticipating changes ahead and not sure what to do and we're not sure how things are going to turn out and so we've prayed. But one of the things we've encouraged ourselves with as we've prayed is, you know, we'll say things like, Lord, you love this church more than we do. We know that it's in safe hands ultimately because Jesus cares. And he doesn't just care for the church as a kind of corporate body. He cares for individuals. Christian friend, he prays and he cares for you. He is invested in your spiritual well-being for eternity. And he's even given his own blood so that you can be made whole, so you can be um, made greater and greater, more like him, and will be happy and happy, happy for eternity. He has the wounds in his hands and his feet to prove it. He cares for you. And knowing that he cares for us, it's just going to help us be motivated as we seek to care for his kingdom, as we seek to pray for it as well. We realise that it's not all on our shoulders. Our weak efforts can actually be multiplied by his. He is the one who strengthens us. And his love for us just makes us want to serve him more and care about um, his priorities as well. So it's not all on us. We have the help of Jesus himself and are driven by his love. And finally, you know, if you're not a Christian today, some of this might feel quite abstract to you. Um, if you're looking in, not sure what this means for you. But I just wonder if there's anything about the prayer of Nehemiah that strikes you. The openness of it. Here's a man who's able to take ownership 
of his sins before a great God. He knows his wrongdoing. Uh, he knows what he's done evilly. Uh, he knows how he's gone against um, God's standards and law. And he knows the greatness of this God. And yet he's able to just speak quite openly and freely to him. You know, in what relationships do we have where we feel we can be truly open? Lots of us have skeletons in the closet, don't we? We don't always feel like we can be truly known and truly share all that we have done, um, all that we are. There's often a sense of shame that comes with our past or even some of our present. And yet here we have a man who's able to be open with the God who made him and just have it all out, knowing that he's invested in him. There's that trust there. And in the Lord Jesus, we see someone who even dies um, for sinful people, for broken people, for people who've done um, all sorts of, of wrong things. And yet who's still invested in us and cares for us. Is there not something attractive about that? To know a God um, who loves you, even though he can see all that you've done. Perhaps the message of Christianity is something worth looking into for yourself. Well, we've seen that we should be caring for God's kingdom. We've seen that we should be praying for God's kingdom and that we're motivated by Jesus himself. So let's pray as we finish, shall we? Lord God, we thank you for Nehemiah. We thank you for his example to us. But we thank you that he points us ultimately to your son, the Lord Jesus, who cares and prays more than we ever will. We thank you that we are sustained, Lord, through the Lord Jesus's care. We thank you that we have an eternity, uh, a future inheritance that is glorious, Lord, because of the Lord Jesus's care. And Lord, we want to confess where we, we haven't given our attention and our headspace and our emotional energy towards the things of your kingdom, uh, towards your church, towards the global church, towards that message of Jesus going out. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness. But we pray that you would change us, change us today, change us this week. Lord, help us, particularly as, as a church, to, to be more invested, to start caring more, to start inquiring Start being proactive. Lord, help us to be prayerful individually and corporately. And Lord, may you use our yeah, inadequate care and prayers um, for your glory, particularly as we seek to rebuild things as a church this term. In Jesus' name, amen.